This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning. It's two minutes past nine. You are tuned to 102.7 3RRR. Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. You might be listening via radio on demand. Regardless of that, good morning, maybe good afternoon, maybe good night to you. <laughs> cover all bases here. This is Radio Marinara. Uh, we are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And my name's Dr Beach. Welcome back, Dr Beach. Thank you very much, Bron. It's... <laughs> get my tongue in order this morning. It's so wonderful to be here. My first show for 2019. Yes, it's so good to have you back. Mid-March. I feel like it's been an eternity since I've been in this beautiful building. You've been globetrotting. I've been globetrotting, yes. Yes, I went, to a, I went to a festival with 25 million people at it. That was um, pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. The Kumbh Mela in Allahabad. Wow. A big Indian festival, a very big Indian festival, which wasn't nearly as kind of scary as I thought it would be. I thought, you know, 80% excitement going, 20% trepidation that I might die somehow and, you know, stampede, whatever. Like the entire population of Australia all in... One place. One place. Yeah, spread on the banks of the Ganges. Yeah. Wow. Where it meets the Yamuna. Incredible. Quite amazing. Yes, I was very fortunate to go there. Thank you very much, Tim, for Vital Bits. Thank you very much, Andrew, uh, for Soulful Bits. Thank you very much, Sally. Thank you for a wonderful um, three hours of Vital Bits, six hours this weekend. And, of course, you can catch Tim next Saturday morning at 6am. As always, Tim, putting in those very hard yards. Indeed. Now, today's program, we're going to uh, catch up with you for your first Life's Beach for 2019. We are, but that's towards the end of the show. And I'm going to talk, I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'd like to celebrate um, 40 years since a paper came out First describing the amazing, fantastically new communities at the bottom of the ocean floor where we had the spreading of... Um, well, we have volcan- you know, stuff coming out of deep oceanic ridges mm. is what I'm trying to say, with black smokers people might have heard of. All this was discovered back in 1977 and the paper was published by um, John Jack Corliss at Al Ballard. People like that were on it as well. It was published in Science in 1979, so the celebration of the 40 years of that, I'd like to talk around that a little bit and what those communities down there teach us and draw a little bit of a, um, a link to something that's happening close to Melbourne. Excellent. Look forward to it. Hmm. Uh, then, uh, well, first up, we're going to have um, Neil Blake, our very own baykeeper, who is going to be joining us in studio uh, to talk about the Greater Green Reef at Point Richards. So this was installed 12 months ago by the City of Greater Geelong to address 15 years of beach erosion. So Neil's been having a look at that, the effects of this reef, and um, doing some surveys to look at intertidal sediment mollusk ecology. So fantastic. catch up with Neil and he's got some more stuff coming up that he's looking for some community members to participate in. So okay, if, so if you're out there listening and you want to get involved with Neil. And who wouldn't? Uh, yeah, wonderful Neil. Excellent. We're going to catch up with Sean Doherty uh, from Fight for the Bite about this week's developments in the campaign uh, against the proposed oil drilling by Equinor in the Great Australian Bight. So this campaign has just been running red hot over the last few weeks. Uh, we'll catch up with Sean about what's happened in the last seven days. On last week's program, we did uh, let you know there was going to be a paddle out in Melbourne uh, in, from St Kilda today. That's actually being put back to next week. So um, okay. I suspect the Grand Prix might have had something to do with that. That's our community service announcement. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
you might want to steer clear of um, that kind of side. Well, not totally that side of town, but um, it might get a bit mad down there today. Uh, so anyway, we'll catch up with Sean about that. Um, there's a huge paddle out happening today in Burley Heads and all sorts of stuff planned for next week. And there's only three days left to provide comment if you want to provide comment on the proposal by Equinor to drill in the bite. A very contentious thing. Indeed. Uh, and very exciting, um, Jeff Maynard, who is... Part of our Radio Marinara team is coming in today, but not to present his regular segment. He's coming in as a guest. So no marine soundscapes today. Not soundscapes. He's coming in to talk about his new and very wonderful book called Antarctica's Lost Aviator. It's about Lincoln Ellsworth. And according to Jeff, he's a man who couldn't navigate, didn't like the cold and avoided <laughs> hard work. Somehow, despite all of that, ended up becoming a polar explorer hero. <laughs> and and Jeff, Jeff has written several very wonderful books yes he's a, he's a very learned man now jeff and an amazing writer so very excited to have jeff yeah, in to that's talk be about lots of fun. this is what he does and i'm really excited about that may we have some weather forecast please dr Beach? okay what's happening out there it's um papers telling me it's gonna to be top of 26 today so patchy morning fog in the outer suburbs mostly sunny areas of smoke haze still a bit of that around from the fires winds northeast southeast 15 to 20k Tending southeast, southwest, late afternoon, and tending northwest, southwest in the late evening. Tomorrow is going to be 27, mostly sunny. Tuesday, 26, a little bit cloudy, 27, 27, and then back up to 31 on Friday. So a bit of warmth this week, high 20s at least. Nice. Looking at, um, yeah, as I said, 31 on Friday at the moment at least. That's what they're predicting. They, the people at the um, at the bomb. Um, I won't make any comment on the surf because the people who want to do that probably have already looked at Swellnet and it's, anyway, small residual swells and moderate easterly winds are favouring the open beaches east of Melbourne. Water temperature's 20 degrees. And tides, if you're heading out on the water, you'll want to know what's happening at the heads at Point Lonsdale. Um, we had high tide about an hour and a half ago and low tide's going to be at a one that at about 1.30. Speaking of the heads and tides, mm. can, can you indulge me for a couple of minutes? I just want to describe a very, very fun thing I did yesterday. Cool. And that was to go to Pope's Eye. Pope's Eye is an area between Portsea and Queenscliff. It's a, um, a man-made sort of little sort of almost donut shape with an open. It looks like a horseshoe, horseshoe shape. Mm. We've talked about it several times on this program and there's a live cam that you can get there from Nature Watch. Went out with a, um, one of the commercial operators. It was fantastic. Paid for it. Went out with... Um, my son, a 17-year-old, and it was just, just wonderful. Uh, well, anyway, red boats, they were great. They did a really good job. Uh, but there are several operators. If you don't have a boat like I do, it's very difficult to get out to places like that. Um, get online and, and go out and have a look. But Pope's Eye is just very, very beautiful. Rocky reef sloping off down to about 10 metres. All sorts of beautiful fish there, seaweeds. Uh, the weather was, was lovely yesterday, as many of you all know. Um, gannets. There's a um, organic colony on Pope's Eye. You can see them diving into the water. Really, really lovely. And then after that, we went over to Chinaman's Hat where there's a colony of Australian fur seals. Mm. We've talked about that before as well, but I'd never been there. And um, get in the water, snorkelling, and the fur seals, who are all males, by the way, so it's either um, elderly males or young males who are there. So no girls, so there's no fighting amongst the boys. Mm. And as I was described to us, a nice, like, big, nice sort of labs. And once you get in the water and start cavorting, then they come and cavort with you. you know, it was cool. really, really beautiful. An amazing thing to do. I highly recommend it. Excellent. Search Pope's Eye getting out there. There's a couple of different operators you can go with. And, um, yeah, lovely thing to do. While the water's still a bit warm before it gets cold. Yeah. 
Fascinating history, Pope's Eye. Did yes. you learn about its why it was constructed? <clears throat> well, it's initially kind of as a bit of a fort, perhaps. Yes, so it was yeah. to house the artillery to protect Melbourne from potentially invading Russians in the First World War, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, which obviously never happened, so... There yeah, you go. and then they, they kind of abandoned it after they put the rocks in, and then now it has a beacon there, and gannets love it, and all sorts That's of marine right. life. And because it's not far from their heads, you've got that that whoosh of water coming in and out, so sponges, mm. all sorts of lovely marine life, which is very accessible, even to an old fart like me. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Beach. I've got a couple of quick plugs I wanted to mention. One is the uh, Ocean Film Festival. You might recall a couple of weeks ago we had Jemima Robinson on the show. She's the festival director. And uh, the Melbourne run of the Ocean Film Festival takes place this week. So uh, there are a couple of screenings. at. There's one at the Asta this coming Tuesday. We've already put the links to that on our Facebook page. We might do a little refresher uh, today um, for those of you who might want to go along because some of the um, proposed um, films that they're going to have, or some of the films they are going to have at the Ocean Film Festival are just extraordinary. Um, if you go to their website, you can have a look at the trailers to give you a bit of a taster. So they're just wonderful. And that's at the Astor, did you say? That's at, uh, at the Astor and at Crown as at well. At Crown as well. Yes. Uh, Rosebud, um, they're screening there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, various coastal locations around. The other thing I wanted to mention, which is not marine related, but I really wanted to get it out there, is that today is Victorian Mosque Open Day. It's on from 10 till 4 o'clock at various mosques around Melbourne. There's one in Dandenong. Uh, oh, look, there's there's just a ton of them. <laughs> one in Monash, uh, one in the city, one in Brunswick, um, one in Hallam. So uh, if you uh, would like to get along there, and uh, today is probably never a better day to, to go and do that, you can go along to Victorian Mosque Open Day, and we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well. Welcome, Neil Blake. <laughs> G'day. Great to be here. Great to have you back. Yes. Yeah. Been- uh, now, I mentioned at the start of the show um, about Grey to Green. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us all about Grey to Green? Yeah, the, the Grey to Green project, as, in, uh, as you mentioned, was um, City of Greater Geelong and the National Centre for Coast and Climate have been involved in installing a semi-submerged breakwater, which is around about 150 metres offshore of um, uh, Point Richards Beach, and the, that's to try and address the ongoing erosion that's been happening. There's been a uh, consistent movement of sand from the west to the east and uh, gradually chewing into the beach to the great dismay of uh, people whose homes are not too far from that beach. So um, this is an interesting project. I think probably the first attempt of this kind in, in Port Phillip Bay uh, where there's basically an, an engineering structure that it isn't actually coming out from the beach, such as a groin or something like that, but it's actually an offshore structure uh, to address that the issue. Wow. Yeah. Whereabouts is Point Richards in relation to... I'm trying to think of another landmark around oh, Geelong, well, maybe it's Eastern Beach. It's basically uh, not that far from Port Arling to the west of Port Arling. Oh, OK. Yeah, so, yep. uh, so just around the shoulder in, moving into Cryo Bay as you're coming up from the south. Yeah. So 150 metres offshore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. Can you describe it? What, 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 what does it look like? Well, it's not there uh, at uh, high tide. You can't see it, So, uh, but at low tide you can, though. So but basically it consists of... Um, uh, modules, which are, oh, I'm not sure of the, into- the exact length, but they might have been five to ten metres long, uh, and they're rock in cages. And also, there's there's two types, though, and this is where the grey to green comes in. Some of the material is simply rock, and 
uh, others, another half of the structure has actually got a lot of shell material in it as well. So the intent is to see uh, how those two uh, substrates sort of serve as uh, areas to be colonised by different uh, species. Oh, oh neat. And, and the shells, they like old mussel shells? Yeah, that's I know right, that. yeah. Mm-hmm. So 15 years ago it went in? Oh, no, it's no? only went in last year. Oh, so right, OK. Now the erosion's been going for, for quite some time. Yep, but, uh, OK. This is, this, uh, so it's, it's just on a year that it's actually been in now. So was it intentionally set up to form an experiment? Yeah. With those yeah. two different types, right. So mm-hmm. you've gone out there and had a look at it to see how it's travelling 12 months in. Uh, well, I've, my role has been uh, monitoring the, um, the uh, beach surface levels and the intertidal, so using the beach profiling method that I've developed for um, monitoring uh, sand movements. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, what we've, we've, there are 12 transects that uh, run across, including two on the outer extremes of the structure, uh, just to see what changes have been happening over that 12-month uh, period. Uh, and But also, though, in addition to that, I'm interested in actually seeing what mollusks might be uh, arriving as well um, in, the, in the sediments that are accumulating there. Mm. And, and, and the data so far, had, had, had sand movements, monitoring, yeah, having, well, having an effect, uh, desired effect? Definitely having a desired effect. Um, with the Certainly the area in the, the immediate protected zone of the structure has is, is grown significantly. Uh, so sand's accumulating on the, yes, on the beach. That, yes, that's yep. right. Uh, um, in the outer uh, extreme transects, though, there hasn't been any any accumulation. Uh, uh, you'll recall, though, that last year we had one of the windiest um, winters for the last 20 or 30 years, and strong northerly winds would have been attacking that. So um, whether that's going to be uh, just a one-year sort of occasion and the sand will eventually start to build up there, we don't know yet, mm. but uh, the, the, the signs are promising. But uh, what I'm particularly interested about for the, um, to check out in, in April is the, the mollusk situation. There has been quite a bit of seagrass colonising the area too, which is... Uh, really, right, really so, so, so on, on, the, on the shells themselves or on, or on, no, the, on uh, the rocks of the two different in, structures? Just in the substrate that's the been substrate, the sand yep. that's actually uh, accumulating there. So the seagrass is obviously oh, right, okay. assist in... Uh, um, Keeping it all together yeah, and br- uh, probably br- accumulating more sand rather than letting it just disappear. So. Mm. Wow! And the, the, the mollusks—have you got any idea of what mollusks will be colonising there yet? Or that's that's the wait and see. That's what you're looking forward uh, to doing. Well, we did uh, a survey with Gordon Tafe students in March um, last year in, along five transects, and we did find uh, uh, some Catalysia scalarina, uh, which uh, sand cockles are commonly known as, uh, but only a couple. Right. Yeah, in, in just very, so very isolated and uh, also a uh, elongated wedge shell too, that's the Paffy's elongata. Um, that was only one of those two, so there they weren't too many. But uh, they were naturally colonising, correct? It's not like they've been planted there. No, no, they, yeah, they were just there anyway. Yeah. But um, I'm expecting, quietly confident, that we're going to find a lot more of them this time around, 12 months later. Yeah. Anything else growing there? So you've got the, I'm picturing it, you've got... The shells like mussel and old mussel and oyster shells in, in a cage and you've also got rocks in a cage and you're comparing mm. those. What are the differences that you're seeing, if any, at the moment in the colonisation of those two different blocks? Uh, well, I, haven't, I haven't looked closely at, the, at the, the structure itself. We did go for a walk out there to take a preliminary look and notice some electroma 
Georgiana had just actually attached itself to the um, the cage. You know, so it's not. <laughs> what's that? What's Electro the Georgiana? Oh, that's just a little. What are they called? Uh, a butterfly shell or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, they they normally live on. And my understanding is uh, attach themselves to seaweeds and things like oh. that. So, yeah, so they're only quite a small, uh, uh, very fragile uh, bivalve. It's, a, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you think about the the nutrient difference that is potentially going to be provided. Particularly, you know, you would expect increased in the the cages that have got the the shells, um, plus also calcium, the cal- contribution of calcium to. Maybe yeah, and also the different architecture would mm. I think will be be interesting as well. So what the. Yeah, what grows on the rocks as opposed to the shells and, whether, and, and indeed whether the shells do get broken down and consumed somehow. Mm. Yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, my particular interest is just, you know, we have structures that are put in to make boating safe and all that sort of stuff, but uh, I'm not sure there's been too many studies to actually really look into uh, what the ecological impacts of those structures are, you know. Mm. So it's a, something that um, is quite a fascinating area and could present some pretty exciting prospects for future because as we're having ongoing sea level rises and coastal erosion we're going to need more and more of these interventions to to look after our natural habitats as well as uh, as well as built infrastructure and property and so um, the more we understand the, the impacts of these uh, interventions, then the better. And interesting that it's gone offshore as opposed to trying to fix the problem. It's it's dealing with it at source. Well, what kind of source? Yeah. Rather than fixing the symptom. That's with right. Sandbagging and maybe sort of more traditional techniques. And heading down the direction of it being part of the ecology and mm. actually enhancing the ecology rather than just saying what the hell, whatever happens, happens. Now you're looking for some um, potentially uh, some potential input, some community members to. Yeah. Yeah, welcome help you uh, people to come down. Uh, it's um, even just to be on the shoreline and observe uh, we're, with the uh, mollusk uh, surveys. That simply is, involves taking a, a shovel sample uh, at fixed points along the transect and then sieving that sample to see what's revealed. Uh, so we could do with a bit of help with that and somebody described to fill out the data sheet. That, you know, a few roles like that that would be really handy if people are interested. Yeah, and when are you looking at doing it? So it's the seventh, the Sunday, the seventh of April. Right, uh, it'll be at nine thirty in the morning. Excellent. So that's uh, that's the first Sunday of the upcoming school holidays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine there might be a few people who will be interested in taking part. Um, how many people do you need roughly, or is it the more the better? Uh, well, there's a couple of things. I'm more so interested in doing beach shell surveys as well. You mm-hmm. know, so we could actually have a group that uh, just combing the beach to um, do a, a shell survey because obviously the um, shells that are on the shoreline are indicative of what's living offshore. Yep. So uh, we have ongoing monitoring of that too. That'll be interesting to see if there's any changes occur over time there too. How can our listeners get in touch with you, particularly our listeners who might be living down Geelong Way? Well, probably, the best, way. probably best if they just email me, which is baykeeper, B-A-Y-K-E-E-P-E-R, at ecocentre.com. Great, fantastic. Anything else you want to plug before we let you go and get you back in a few weeks' time? Uh, well, uh, I'll just mention the, the, the um, street... T- to bay uh, litter audits that we've been doing with the scouts are proving very interesting. Uh, so uh, we did one um, at uh, Ascot Vale last week to train the uh, Essendon Sea Scouts uh, who happily reside on the Maribyrnong River, on the banks of the river there. Uh, and there was a really fascinating uh, 
plastic fronds that we came across outside of this retail site uh, in Raleigh Road. Mm. And uh, what the hell, I'd never seen such things before, you know, and there was just uh, several hundred of them. Mm. Uh, and uh, it turned out that there was a car wash just next door which had these scrubbers, revolving oh. scrubbers on it, and that's where it was coming from, you know. So and this was in the Maribyrnong? No, it wasn't in the Maribyrnong. It was in the, in the gutter, not oh, far right, from the, the Maribyrnong. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, uh, so um, that was a really good find. Um, that sort of leaves the question now, how, how do we approach this? I mean, is, in terms of we need to talk to the proprietor of the um, uh, place, but the, would it be a, a, a local government role to deal with that or, or is it EPA you know so the, the spirit's a little bit grey area which will be interesting to find out when you come back in a few weeks time mm. let us know well done thanks Neil thank you and uh, without further ado we're now going to cross to Sean Doherty to catch up on the latest in the fight for the bite campaign good morning Sean yeah morning guys how you doing yeah good thanks how are you uh yeah pretty good a little uh yeah a little uh Exhausted. We've just spent a week down the bite, actually. Um, so yeah, it's been uh, it's been quite a quite a journey. Now, what have you been up to down at the bite? This is all part of the campaign, I believe. Yeah, yeah. We wanted to catch up with some of the uh, the campaign crew who've been working on on the campaign going way back till uh, to when these leases went in in 2011, and just kind of and and just see where they're at with it, um, and all the different kind of walks of life that have been involved in this. We've met a ton of people. Um, Obviously, it's 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 quite a hot topic down there at the moment um, with all this happening. But it's like it's they're hugely elevated. The whole crew, you know, they've fought these guys for like five years, and it's so remote down there, and these towns are so small. They felt they're just doing it on their own, um, fighting these multinational oil giants. And so suddenly, to have it all shift in the past couple of weeks, and to have the whole you know the whole East Coast, the you know all the metro centres come on behind them. Um, yeah, they're really, uh, it's put some wind in their sails. Sean, hi, it's, it's Dr Beach here. For, for somebody who's just dropped onto Earth from Venus and hasn't been listening to the news for the last <laughs> few weeks, okay, what, what is the Fight the Bite campaign about? Yeah, OK, well, there's currently a proposal put in by a large uh, Norwegian company to drill an exploratory oil well. Uh, it's roughly about 400 k's out in the, uh, in the Great Australian Bight, really deep water. Uh, quite a lot of risk involved um, with potential, you know, their own spill modelling sees pretty much the entire southern coastline of Australia affected by oil if something went wrong. Um, there's been a lot of crew coming behind it. It's really flared up in the last couple of weeks. Um, and it's, yeah, people are seeing it as a line in the sand. It's, it's quite a big issue. And until a few weeks ago, we, we described it as being one of the great environmental sleepers in that it was something that, as you've just pointed out, something that local communities have been acutely aware of, but it, it seems to have sort of bypassed many people, unless you're part of the surfing community, in which case you've known about it through, um, through avenues, um, channels like uh, Swellnet and just your own local networks. But in terms of getting it out there, it's been something that's really been fairly quiet. But uh, as you've just pointed out, not the case anymore. And we've now really got, you know, I think we can call it national support for this campaign. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the surf community and the coastal community have fallen in behind it. Um, and it was, it was a huge sleeper. It's the nature of the issue. It's like, it's a long way down there in the bite and it's, it's such an underground coast anyway. Um, you know, it's so wild, it's remote um, and it's kind of, it's, it's removed a little bit from the, the Australian consciousness because it's just so far away. But it's, um, but I think people have realised, you know, they've had a good think about it and 
and the intrinsic value and what it means to them as, as coastal people to have this huge wild space down there. And the thing is, as soon as they drill a well there and put a rig up, it's not wild anymore. It ceases to be wild. Now, Equinor have put their proposal into the national regulator um, called NOPSEMA and there are three days left to provide public consultation. There's a four-week period and Equinor have maintained that they didn't need to do this. It was something that they wanted to do to be open and transparent. Now that opportunity is there for people to provide their public comment. Uh, where are we up to, Sean, with that? Because there were thousands of comments that had been provided this time last week. Yeah, pretty. I think we're pretty much... I think we've ticked over 20,000... So it's getting there. Like, we'd love to see people in these last few days really, if you haven't done it, I'd really strongly encourage you to get on and have, and have a look at Equinor's environment plan. It's completely indecipherable. It's like 1,500 pages. It's not meant to be kind of to be, uh, to, to be poured through. But have a look at it. Try and get your head around it and put a submission in. They're like, they all count, and we just need to get that number up. Um, to Equinor's credit, they didn't have to do this. The, the whole system is so secretive. You know, people are designed not to be... They design it for people to be cut out of this process. Um, to Equinor's credit, they, at least they, they engaged in, on this level. But again, it's only 30 days. Like, who in 30 days is going to understand a, a really dense scientific document that's 1,500 pages long? But have a look at it. You've got three days to put a submission in. Um, and it counts. Like, this is, this is to be part of the process. This really matters. Now, the last two big public pushes uh, that we know of anyway in the, in the current time, uh, in terms of showing um, sort of physical opposition to this, there's a big paddle out plan today at Burley Heads. I'm across the road from it right now. Oh. <laughs> you've gone yeah. from you've gone from South Australia to Queensland in how many days? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's been a quick turnaround, but uh, this one is this one's interesting. The, I'm, I've got a feeling the the noise that's been around this this week. I've got a feeling it's going to be the biggest one nationally we've seen. And the the really interesting aspect of this is that the Gold Coast isn't in the Equinor's oil spill modelling map. Oil won't get here. In the worst, worst-case scenario, it won't get to Burley Heads. But you're going to have this huge show of support here in support of all the crew in the bite. And it's you just get this feeling of solidarity that people are getting in behind it. And what this, what this idea represents, they're just saying, you know, that it's a line in the sand. It's no more. Like, we want to be involved in these decisions. It's not just between the oil lobbyists and the feds. Like, we want to have a go at this. Mm. This, this matters to us. This is a way of life for, for everyone, even if... Even if oil ends up on your beach or if it doesn't, it's, you know, it, it's a statement. Uh, and then next week, uh, we're actually going to... Um, I had a chat yesterday with Jonathan Taylor, I believe his surname is. <laughs> Suddenly my mind's gone blank. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, down there in Melbourne, yeah. Yeah, so there's a big paddle out planned in St Kilda. It was going to happen today. It's happening next Sunday uh, in the afternoon. Uh, we'll put the links to that on our Facebook page too, but um, a big one next Sunday from St Kilda, so quite accessible to, you know, the millions of people who live in and around Melbourne to be able to get to this one as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it, it's so important for for this issue to have the, the metropolitan cities kind of come in and engage with it because you know melbourne would melbourne's in the the oil spill modeling as well you know mm. it's, it's right there so um there's a direct effect but it, it needs to to get beyond and that's why i said it just these guys fought it so long in these little towns down there like towns that, like streaky bay and and sojourner and the, like really tiny populations against like bp against like chevron and they're just like they've just got bottomless pits of money to fight this thing and these guys are just 
going about their business. So suddenly to have it all shift and to head into metro cities, to, to be up here on the Gold Coast, it's kind of huge. Yeah, it's, it's making a real statement. It is. And let's see uh, what kind of support you get in terms of media exposure in the week coming up. And I would have thought with um, literally thousands of people paddling out at Bur- Burley Heads, we'd like to see some large exposure on this, Sean. Yeah, the mainstream crew have dropped the ball a little bit um, and they've been late to the party, but it's uh, it's kind of, you've got a feeling it's going to it's gonna break pretty soon. They can't ignore it. Like, the, you can't ignore if a, if a few thousand people turn up here. Yeah. Um, you can't ignore a few thousand people turning up in Melbourne. It, it'll get there. Um, but it's, yeah, no, I'm, I'm quietly confident that this is, yeah, that... Uh, that we'll get we'll get something out of this. Fantastic. All right, we're going to put the links to that on our Facebook page. I'll be in touch during the week and um, see if we can uh, organise to have both you and Jonathan either in studio on the phone this time next week to um to really uh, to talk about the Melbourne paddle app and, and and also catch up on what's what's going to be coming up in the week ahead. Yeah, love to. And all the best, Sean, for today. And um, oh, I, I can't imagine what the vibe is going to be like up there. Uh, for our listeners who are in Burley Heads, we know we have listeners everywhere. Get down there and show your support. And even if you don't have a board, well, I suppose if you live in Burley Heads, you probably do. But if you... <laughs> Yeah, that is prerequisite. <laughs> yeah. Comes, comes with the territory. Yeah, exactly. The, um, and like, luckily, we've, got, we've had, had a few, few days of rain here. The rain's cleared and we've actually got pretty flat seas, which is good. Oh, excellent. Um, it'll, be an, it'll be a nice leisurely paddle out. So, yeah, come down. Excellent. Good job. No Good on you, Sean. We'll um, we'll catch up with you next week. Thanks for your support, guys. Yeah, no worries. See you soon. Bye for now. Sean Doherty there, Fight for the Bike campaign. Um, We have already put some links to their Facebook page on ours, but we'll do so again. And you can can hear the the excitement in his voice. Oh, yeah. It's gaining momentum. And it must be, I mean, it's for, not for a good, it is a good reason, finally, but you you, you don't want the, you didn't want this to come up in the first place, but now that it's happening again, this campaign moving, you can... Yeah, sense that excitement. And, and I get it, it's big congrats to him for getting this moving. Absolutely. And and all look props to uh, Wilderness Society as well, well because yeah, they have yeah. been right um, on board and really pumping this one too. Kind of get a sense that there's this real real uh, well sense out there that people want some good things to come out of this. There's been so much bad news in um, in our worlds lately mm. and uh, this is our opportunity to do something really good. We're going to welcome, as guest, Jeff yes. Maynard. Wearing a different hat today. Yeah. No sound waves. No funny little sound grabs off weird TV shows that no <laughs> one's ever heard of or no one ever wants to. Oh, no, no we all want to. I'm flogging a book today. Um, my new, my latest book, called Antarctica's Lost Aviator. Um, and it's the story of Lincoln Ellsworth, who was a wealthy, incompetent American <laughs> who wanted to become the first person to fly across Antarctica. That's a great name, Lincoln Ellsworth. Oh, it's you, you've got to be doing He's just such a dignified looking. He's a great looking guy. Um, and not only that, but he, his hero was Wyatt Earp. So his idea was to carry <laughs> Wyatt Earp's gun belt across Antarctica. And, and just because he wanted to, just just because he wanted to. Like what, what? Because he could. Okay. And he could afford it. Right. And he wanted to. Oh, well, he, it was really about a self-image thing. He suffered from depression. He was um, a, a lot of self-image problems. And so he wanted to do something great. And in the 1930s, by the 1930s, uh, most of Antarctica had still not been explored. No one knew what was in the middle. No one knew if it was one large continent or just a series of islands or anything. Mm. So... Um, uh, and everyone had been sort of the North Pole, the South Pole, they'd done all these things. There was no real sort of exploration things left except 
no one had crossed Antarctica. Mm. So uh, Ellsworth had inherited an enormous amount of money, what today would be billions of dollars from his father. Oh, so that's why he was depressed. He hadn't made the money. He just, he he, 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 money. He, he just inherited He's just like, you know, Yeah, well, it was, he, well. He, had a, he had a terrible relationship with his father because his father was an overbearing businessman who mm. expected Ellsworth to be strong and follow in the family business. Right. And Ellsworth was shy. He was very sensitive. He was a homosexual at a time when it wasn't a really good thing to be a homosexual because of all the laws and things. And so he, he, he really was very withdrawn. Um, And uh, after his father died, he inherited all this money and he set out to do something great that would sort of put him in the history books. Uh, His big problem was he was incompetent and couldn't navigate and didn't want to. Uh, So he he hired... um, In in the 1930, the Australian explorer, Sir Hubert Wilkins, was trying to get to the North Pole in a submarine by going under the Arctic ice. And um, uh, Ellsworth was encouraged to uh, sponsor the submarine expedition. So he threw in about $100,000 at the time and it failed and Sir Hubert was left in debt to Ellsworth. So Ellsworth turned around and said, well, to repay the debt, you organise the expedition where I fly across Antarctica. So Ellsworth went to his castle in Switzerland and sort of sat there while Sir Hubert Wilkins organised the whole thing. He, right. he got a ship, uh, which Ellsworth named Wire Derp after his, uh, after his hero. <laughs> Uh, uh, Sir Hubert Wilkins got a, a Norwegian crew. So I say he was like the movie producer for this thing. In a sense, yeah. yeah. He, he, he basically he'd inherited a castle in Switzerland and he sort of sat there and it was full of Rembrandts and all this sort of stuff that he also had. Um, and so Ellsworth sat there while, while Wilkins organised the whole thing. And Wilkins got the, the crew, the ship, he organised an aeroplane, pilot... Uh, got the got the whole lot down to Dunedin at the bottom of New Zealand, saying, "Right, we're ready to go." Ellsworth came across on a on a luxury liner and said, "Okay, let's go." And came on board the White Earp. They went down to the Ross Ice Shelf, um, and they unloaded the plane on the shelf. And the uh, the shelf broke up. The plane was damaged, so they went back. Right. And they said, "Okay, we'll do it again." It, it actually went to Antarctica four times. It took him took him a few trips to get it right because every time he went down, something went wrong. Uh, and then when he finally did sort of get airborne and had his um, plane heading across Antarctica, uh, about five or six hours after he, uh, Ellsworth left, um, radio contact was lost. And so the, basically the world gave him up to dead, up for dead because there's no-one else down there. Um, and so um, uh, they started... The Australian government sort of started sending expert expedition down to see if they could find him and and, uh, and the book um, is, is the story of all the, the goings on and um, uh, what happened uh, how he got lost the expeditions from uh, the expedition to go down and try and rescue him find him left from Williamstown they got a, a British ship for the discovery uh, took it to Williamstown in Victoria stuck an aeroplane on it and sailed down to the Ross Ice Shelf to look for him and, uh, and and the book is basically the story of, of Ellsworth, Sir Hubert Wilkins, and all the um, all the ways he organised everything, and um, and uh, what happened. Uh, one of the, one of the funny things about it is because I found in the rec- I found all the lost records in Michigan, in, in an Amish barn. Uh-huh. Um, Okay, sorry. <laughs> There's all these questions I want to ask you. You, you yeah. go first, like, Dr. Number, number one, could Ellsworth fly? Did he? I mean, you no, said he no, was he had a pilot with him. He hired a Canadian pilot. <laughs> um, right. Who, who they didn't speak to each other, but the, the Canadian pilot. Um, but, but Ellsworth didn't keep any records. 
Uh, yeah. Wilkins did. Wilkins kept absolutely everything. It, throughout his life, he kept everything, you know, receipts, everything. And so it, uh, Wilkins had all this stuff and, and boxes of the stuff, and that, that's kind of another story. Um, but boxes did, of the stuff ended up in an Amish barn yes. in Michigan. How <laughs> did you end up in an Amish barn? Oh, okay. Jeff um, Maynard. Wilkins. Wilkins. <laughs> Hubert Wilkins died in 1958. You're right. going to get the brief. The brief version. He died in 1958, yep. and his stuff filled three buildings. He'd kept everything all his life. Um, and, and Bit of a hoarder. Yeah, very much a hoarder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so he had all this stuff. He'd been on Shackleton's and Shackleton expedition. He'd been around the world. No oh, Graf right. Zeppelin. He'd done submarine expeditions. He flew over the Antarctic himself. So all, all his stuff was kept, and it got split up. And it went to his, uh, first of all, it went to his wife, then it went to his her partner. And uh, when her partner died, um, her partner's son got boxes of stuff and took it back. He lived on a farm in Michigan, took it back there and stored it in a neighbour's barn. Right. And they that, were, they that's were good English. that he didn't put it out with the hard rubbish. Well, I kind of got to him. I, I, I met him. I went, I meant to... Um, I went, I went to uh, Michigan and, and met him. You know, we'd been corresponding for years, and he put me sort of. He had a pickup truck the size of a backyard swimming pool, and we went out <laughs> to the barn and we put all the stuff in the back, and we bent, went back to his um, his shed, and we I sat in his shed for two weeks going through all this stuff and <laughs> and I found some amazing stuff. Um, and, and but I found the records of, of the Ellsworth expedition, which all the radiograms and the telegrams and the crew lists and all. It wow. must have been like opening up a treasure. Oh, it was, it was, because one of the other things Wilkins did too, he was the official photographer at World War One at the Western Front with Charles Bean, so I found all these records and, and census lists and uh, lists of photographs and things from, from Anzac photographs from the Western Front in World War One. and he also went to, uh, with Bean to Gallipoli after the war, so there was just, it, it's, it's stuff I'm still actually sorting through and getting my head around. Um, Another story, Brian was supposed to be flogging my book. Antart- <laughs> Antart- <laughs> Antart- oh, Antart- I think we're doing a very good job of that. Aviator. Okay. Uh, <laughs> available uh, anyway, anyway, available at all the bookstores? Uh, yeah, it's been released in America. Uh, so it's in the bookstores in America. It won't actually get into the bookstores in Australia till later this year if you're looking for it on a shelf. But if you go to all the online bookstores in Australia, the Dimmicks and the Booktopias and all that, yep. it's, it's all there. All wait. So, so, so you can grab a copy. Uh, I'm going to talk about something else. Can I ask you? If yeah, sure. Now you, you oh, you got all these. Oh, I found Wyatt Earp's cartridge belt. <laughs> I did. Because I mean, this must have been so exciting. I just when, when I found barn, the list of all this stuff, because Wilkins had kept a record of everything he'd carried on the uh, Ellsworth. It actually carried on the yeah. on the third flight where he got it right and he flew across Antarctica. Uh, on the list was Wyatt Earp's cartridge belt. So where is it now? It's in the American Museum of Natural History. Fantastic. And I contacted them. It took me about two years, but I was shopping emails with them, and they said, "Yes, yes, we've got this stuff that Ellsworth done." So they didn't know they had Wyatt Earp's cartridge belt. <laughs> so they, after about a year and a half, they, they thought there's some nut from Australia <laughs> sending, sending them emails. And they finally pulled it out about three weeks ago and sent me a photograph of it. Oh, and that's it's awesome. Like, wow, yeah. And they said, oh, How okay. do you know that it's Wyatt Earp's cartridge belt? Uh, because there's a little tag on it. And when Ellsworth... Els, Wyatt Earp only died in 1929. I'm digressing a little bit. He died in 1929, yep. Wyatt Earp, in California. And Josephine was still alive mm. and Ellsworth went to Josephine um, Earp and um, started buying 
she, she was a, a hopeless alcoholic and broke, so he started giving her money and she started giving him... Stuff. Stuff. Of and wife. so there's, there's a six-shooter. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, Ellsworth actually had Wyatt Earp's wedding ring and he wore that when he flew across Antarctica <gasps> as well. And that's in the, um, oh, the Arizona State Historical Society and it's all validated as his and everything. But the cartridge belt and had a little tag on it that, you know, given... T- um, uh, when uh, when Ellsworth died, um, uh, a woman donated it to the museum with a little tag saying, you know, sold by Josephine Earp to Lincoln. So, yeah, now, all true. Feel free to say no. Can we find out whether he made it? Given that you said that they lost radio contact. Oh, okay. yeah, I knew lost. you were going to say that. He's lost in Antarctica. Oh, okay. We'll leave it the at that. The world's all worried. Come on, it's called Lost Aviator. <laughs> Antarctica's Lost Aviator. Have I said that enough? Um, <laughs> just... The 1930s. Before I go... Yes. Who's it who's by? Who's the author? Uh, <laughs> oh, no, look, son. He's a good writer, but I can't think of his name. Jeff Maynard. <laughs> oh, that's him, yeah. Um, uh, just before I go, I do want to put in a plug for an event at the 3rd of April at the Sun Theatre in Ballarat. Uh, sorry, Ballarat Street, Yarraville, the, sun, the beautiful old Art Deco Sun Theatre, and it's the Explorers Club Evening of Adventure. Um it's it's for details. You go to our, their website, which is anzec a n z e c dot org, Australia New Zealand Explorers Club. Um, they hold these regularly at the Sun Theatre. I'll be speaking, um, and uh, I'll be speaking on the search for the lost records of Sir Hubert Wilkins and the ongoing search to lo- locate all these boxes and what I've been finding and things. And there's a um, a, a, a brilliant couple. Uh, the Joneses, uh, mm-hmm. Lauren and uh, Lauren and Justin, and they've walked 1,600 kilometres across the Australian desert with their one-year-old daughter to check out the landscape and all that. So uh, that's at the the evening. That's the, the Explorers Club's Explorers Club of New York, but the Australian New Zealand chapter hold these evenings, and uh, I'm one of the people speaking there this time, third uh, of April. Uh, so go to anzec anzec and you'll see the details. But they're great evenings. Um, you know, you get to mingle with a whole lot of interesting people and talk about what they're doing. Like yourself. Whew. <laughs> Evening of, of an evening of adventure, the Sun Theatre, Ballarat Street, Yarraville, Wednesday, third of April, from six thirty until ten o'clock. I have all those details right in front of me, Jeff, and we'll put them on our Facebook page yes. this afternoon. You got a book too? They they sell out these things. Yes, and I imagine you this can't one will. Up and buy a ticket, no. especially when you can't get the book in stores until end of the year. Yeah. What a long drum roll. I'm actually going to take some stuff along to show people, which will sort of oh, blow them away. Brilliant. Like a little display case. A photo. Weird of things you find in Amish barns. Sorry? <laughs> a photo of White Earp's cartridge belt, maybe. Oh, yeah, I can bring a photo of that. It's, it's a beautiful-looking cartridge belt. Excellent. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Didn't have a holster on it. <laughs> right. That's a myth. At the gunfight of the OK Corral, he actually had his gun in his uh, coat pocket. Oh. It's a bit of trivia. Uh-huh. Yeah, it didn't have a holster. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. We're going to get you back in to present soundscapes I, again. I think I'm we'll doing a, 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 a in a couple of weeks' time. I'm not sure. Great. Well, we I'll can talk about this again. We will. Yeah. Thank you. What was that book called? Antarctica's Lost Aviator. <laughs> Just available in all good bookstores at the end of the year. Why God invented Google? <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Peach. Brian. 40 years since um, a paper was published on ocean floor hot springs by John Corliss and a few other people. Bob Ballard was one of them as well. Um, after going down in Alvin, and we've heard of Alvin from um, scripts, uh, no, well, 
Scripps, no, I think it was Woods Hole, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. But the discovery of this, which happened in late 1977, published in 1979 in Science, so we're now celebrating the 40 years, and this is a little piece from Science that I'm taking this from. But it was interesting that the discovery of these amazing biological communities, which we now understand a lot about, and many of us have seen, I think, National Geographic, Geographic article seen shows on this where you have these amazing tube worms and clams and blind shrimp and all sorts of wonderful creatures down there. That they had no idea that there would be this biology down there. This is at two and a half kilometres. They sent, they went down. They were looking. These oceanographers. There were thermal anomaly, uh, thermal an- anomalies on the sea floor. They understood that tectonic plates, so the plates which form the crust of the Earth, that they do separate, and you have Um, volcanic activity there and they suspected yeah let's go down and look at this have a look at this volcanic activity they could tell that there was you know temperature anomalies it was a bit hotter when they went down in Elvin it was wonderful so these are geochemists and they're geologists not biologists at all and I just want to quote something here so Corliss called up the crew this is from Alvin so he's down there on Alvin two and a half kilometers below the surface Um, and he said isn't the deep ocean supposed to be like a desert? Yes, was the reply. And then he said, well, there's all these animals down here. That, mm. tri- that throwaway line opened up this whole completely different world of biology. Now, at two and a half kilometres down, you can't have primary production through photosynthesis because it's dark. Everything on Earth that we understand, mostly up until that stage, was driven by energy being captured by sunlight, using carbon dioxide, making sugars, and that makes the whole biological world go around. But down there, there's no sunlight. Mm. Two and a half kilometres down, any organic matter that gets made up in the the photic zone at the top, by the time it reaches the depths of two and a half kilometres, it's kind of been, had all its nutrients sucked out. So that couldn't support life. So what what this led to was the discovery of a new group of microorganisms. We now call them the archaea. And they are able to make carbohydrates, like sugars and things, but not through the process of photosynthesis, which we're used to thinking about, that lots of other organisms can do, including bacteria. Um, But they were doing it by eating um, a process that we call chemosynthesis. So they could eat hydrogen sulfide, essentially, and they could combine that with oxygen. They could make carbohydrate from it. So this was another primary source of production which is hitherto unknown these are really unique sites it's interesting that they say that like there's kind of dotted along these these fissures if you like between the tectonic plates and if you add up the whole area of them it's only the size of manhattan but still we're making really important discoveries about all of these things and those bacteria the bacteria like organisms in fact led to um i guess that the, the description of a new domain of life so we have bacteria that we think we used to think of and there's this other group called the archaea the, the extremophiles down there in those hot springs it's really 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 hot these extremophiles love that temperature they can eat rocks and interestingly we've got another example of an extremophile if you drive across the westgate bridge you look down at the pink lake there's a couple of mm. organisms in there one of them is a halobacterium its extreme environment that it loves is high salty conditions which is what we have in that lake under the westgate <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.